Please be seated. So I have a terrible habit, and uh, I've been warned about it at several points in my life, and I still have not been able to defeat it, and uh, I'm going to apologize for it, and I'm working on it. Uh, but I drop my voice too low sometimes, and uh, there are only two ways I know to deal with that. Number one is for me to be more mindful of what I'm doing up here, which is really hard because I'm not trying to pay attention to my own voice. I'm trying to uh, ignore my own voice as much as possible, but the other would be for everybody to get those little in-ear radios that I'm <laughs> and uh, and then you could hear for ten bucks you could hear everything. So up to you, but I'll, I'll work on me and you work on you. How about that? Our our text this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter one. Uh, a few verses in the beginning and a few verses in the middle. This is the word of God for us this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skip to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He who, of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received Grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Lord, these are mighty, mighty words when we pause to ponder them. And they speak of the deepest truths and the the beginning moments of the creation of the universe. They speak of your purposes for us and your purposes for the world. And they are magnificent. They are awesome in the truest sense of the word. At Christmas time, sometimes these truths can be obscured just by a long familiarity with the idea that the creator of the universe became a baby and then grew into a man and lived among us and taught and died and rose. Help us, Father, to grasp once again the great mystery. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Well, there are many hard things in the scriptures and many things which are, are hard to connect to other things in the scriptures. And the Bible doesn't give us nice systematic treatments uh, on doctrinal issues the way that a theology book does. And that's okay because that's how God set it up. Uh, he did it on purpose. And he tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Uh, he actually said that he did it in order to uh, confuse people who want to be confused. 
and, uh, and they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Um, I, I, I find that uh, somewhat heartening in a way because I have a, a tendency myself that, that I, I would feel bad about if I didn't see uh, God doing it too. You know, you get people, I used to pastor a church and there was this one person who would come up to me all the time and point out all the errors and the spelt, misspelled words in the bulletin. This was in the days before we had you know, widespread available word processors and things like that. We were still done with a typewriter. And, uh, and, and I would always say to that person, yeah, we do that to keep people like you busy in church because we know you're not paying attention to anything else. And so that's, uh, and, and, and God's doing that. He's given the scriptures and he set them up in the way he set them up so that people who want to be distracted, people who want to be deceived, people who want to avoid the main point can do it. And that's okay. God has often given us the great doctrines of the faith in what I like to call kit form. Uh, the pieces are all there, but we have to figure out how to fit them together. And God seems to want us to be able to use our minds and our logic and reason together and fit things together. And it's a kind of a, sometimes can be a, a long process. Now, he's given that task to his people, and by saying his people, I don't mean each one of us as individuals, I mean the church as it has existed through the centuries. And the way that the church has done this down through history is by a centuries-long conversation or debate. And uh, this, once again, is another thing that we inhabited from the Jews. If you, if you know any Jewish um, terminology, the Torah is the, the books of the Bible, the Tanakh, or the five books of Moses, the Tanakh is... The, their word for the whole of the Old Testament. But then they've, then they've got the Talmud. And the Talmud is commentary back and forth across centuries about certain passages on the scriptures. And that's how the Jewish people reason together about the meaning of the scriptures. Well, the church has done much the same thing. And, and I want you to be aware of that conversation because it's important. And one of the reasons it's important is because every once in a while, some whistlehead comes up with something he thinks nobody has ever thought of before. And, and boy, and, and he writes a book about it and everybody goes, oh, that's brilliant. Nobody's ever thought of that before. And it's like, yeah, that's been thought of before about six or seven times and it's been rejected and here's why. Well, if you're familiar with that conversation, you know that. But if you're not, you can think that you're just, you know, this amazing singular light in the 21st century that, that sees things that nobody else has, has seen. And there's also only so many different ways to go wrong. And so to, to know over time how people have gone wrong and how their arguments have been corrected and refuted is enormously helpful. One of the first issues that faced the church very early on, was the question of Jesus. Who is he? What is his relationship to the God revealed to the Jews in the Old Testament? What exactly is his nature? What did he accomplish in his work? And how does his work save us? Because we know that it does, but how does it do that? And answering those questions became increasingly important in the second, third, and fourth centuries precisely because the devil continuously raised up individuals and groups, usually from within the church itself, that ended up misinforming people. 
that ended up drawing people astray. and, And the goal of the devil was to destroy as many souls as possible. And so the early church was a time of great spiritual attack, great spiritual warfare. And and there's a lot of controversy then. And it's good that there was because it forced the church to think about things and to search the scriptures and then to come together and say, okay, this is what we think the scriptures say. And then to submit that to the judgment of further generations. And so the church would gather her best minds and they would go at it, hammer and tongs, to answer these questions. And the answers were often put forth in the form of a creed or a confession. And those documents were designed to be used in the church to instruct the common people in the truths of the Scriptures. Our hymn today, O Come All Ye Faithful, is drawn in part from one of those early creeds. There are three creeds which we call today the ecumenical creeds. Every branch of Christianity holds to these creeds. We would all recite them. Now, sometimes we have differences on what the words mean, on what the definitions are. But we believe the creeds. And every branch of Christianity believes in particular these ecumenical creeds. The the first one is the Apostles' Creed. And most of us probably know that one off by heart. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he arose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Everybody knows that one, right? How many of you know that one? All right. How many of you don't know that one? Well, you do now. Good. Excellent. Okay. Uh, The second one is probably less well-known, although its theology is, is super important. It's called the Athanasian Creed. And we're going to talk a little bit again about Athanasius and who he was. And that really has to do with the nature of the Trinity and the nature of Christ and his divine and human natures. And then there's the the Nicene Creed, which we're probably familiar with, but less familiar with. It's a little longer than the Apostles' Creed. And O come all ye faithful is drawn from the Nicene Creed. How did all of this come about? How did we get the Nicene Creed? Well, it is uh, because of some things that happened in, in the history of the early church. It's because of something called the Arian controversy. Now, when I say Arian, I'm not talking about guys with swastikas and crew cuts who are marching around with Nazi flags. I'm talking about a guy named Arius. Arius was born in what today is Libya, and he was ordained as a presbyter or a pastor, and he served a small, relatively unimportant church in Alexandria, Egypt. And Arius had arrived at the conclusion that in his understanding of the Scriptures, Jesus Christ was not God. Not in the same way that the Father was God, anyway. Now, Arius twisted and misinterpreted a lot of Scriptures to arrive at this conclusion. But one of his go-tos 
was America's favorite football spectator verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was one of Arius' favorite scriptures. Now, we don't use that word beget or begotten very often anymore. And so we might not really understand what that means. But to beget in older English refers to the male contribution in procreation and making a baby. A woman bears a child. A man begets a child. And Arius fixated on that word begotten, only begotten son. And this is what he said about it. If the father begat the son, then he who was begotten had a beginning in his existence. And from this, it follows that there was a time when the son was not. So, no, I mean, you, there's a certain logic to that, right? If he's the only begotten son, that means that there was a time where he wasn't begotten, and then there was a time where he was begotten. And so, therefore, there was a time when Jesus Christ, the son, the, 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 the word made flesh, when he didn't exist. Not not after his birth, not about his birth. This was about in the councils of eternity past. But there was a time when Jesus, or when the Christ, when the, the second person of the Trinity did not exist. Now, the great majority of Christians in this time had no clear views about the nature of the Trinity. They didn't understand what was at stake in the issues surrounding it. And in that respect, they're not much different than many of us today. And we haven't really thought about these things as a people. We're not carefully instructed on them. We don't know why they're that important. And so um, you can expect that the devil will raise up those who will challenge the notion of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity in our day as well. Even Arius' boss, his bishop, was slow to deal with Arius because the issues were not clear to him. And that's how it often is with errors like this, it's not always immediately clear to most of the people involved just exactly what the problem is. And I've run into this in my own career as well. Now here's the, the interesting fact, and it's something that the devil relies on. And as I said, I've seen this and I've seen it in my own career. The people who tend to see the problems with a new view or a new doctrine that's peddled forward uh, are people who, who are systemic thinkers. They love systems. They love order. They love consistency. They understand how all the parts fit together and how they relate to each other and how one thing, by, by changing it, can impact a whole bunch of other things. I happen to be one of those kind of thinkers. I can, I can build a three-dimensional model of any engine, for instance, in my head and predict you know, exactly where you're gonna to have to put things and how things are gonna work, and if you change this, what else would it change? And, and so these people who think this way, because they see in systems, um, see the problems earlier than other people. And the problems bug them. And they want the problems fixed. And they're rather insistent about it. In other words, they're people who are often people who are probably on the autism spectrum somewhere. And the heretics, on the other hand, are often the nicest people 
and the most socially adept people. Now, when people don't understand the issues in a controversy, very often, rather than working to understand the issues, they simply pick the person they like the best, the, the one who's the nicest, the one who has the most pleasing personality. And usually, that's the heretic. And the person who's warning about the heretic, well, they don't like him as much. He's kind of an irritant. And that's kind of what happened in this case. Arius was a master of PR, and he was good at influencing. He was particularly good at influencing the common people, and he would put his most dangerous ideas into little chants that were easy to learn and easy to remember, and the common people loved it. They ate it up. And one of his chants was commonly heard in the streets of Alexandria, and it was this, there was when he was not. There was when he was not. In other words, there was a time when Christ, the Son, did not exist, and then God created him. And the person who stood against Arius the most consistently and the most effectively was a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was a wonderful man. He's one of the people when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like, yeah, it's good to see you, Adam. It's good to see you, Granddad. Can you point me to Athanasius? I really want to meet that guy and just say, thank you. He was one of the bravest people in Christian history. Now, I can't prove that Athanasius was on the spectrum, but I strongly suspect it. Athanasius was so stubborn, he stood up to literally four different Roman emperors, and he was exiled by those Roman emperors five times. Uh, and one of them sent assassins to try and kill him. He spent all of his time in exile Instead of whining and moaning about being in exile, he spent it all writing letters and theological treatises to explain carefully why the Arians were wrong. And, and here's yet another treatise from Athanasius. Here's, here's explaining here why the Arians are wrong in this area and then, and then in this area. He was a very systematic thinker. And, and at one point, someone looked at him and said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And Athanasius looked and he said, well, then Athanasius is against the whole world. I mean, he didn't care. One biographer describes him like this. Athanasius was very small in stature and rather stooped and somewhat emaciated in appearance. He had a forceful personality and a sharpness of intellect. Though he was gentle and meek of spirit, he was driven by a determination to keep the Orthodox Christian faith no matter how many opposed him. His inner intensity made him quick of movement and constantly active. And as I said, one emperor, Julian the Apostate, even sent assassins to kill him at one point in time. This guy went through a lot, and he prevailed because he was obsessed with what is right, not with what everyone else thought. So if you are not, as they say, neurotypical, and you're sitting here in this room, don't worry too much about it. God gave you the brain he gave you. Strive towards sanctification. Strive towards true Christ-like holiness. It's out of people like you that God makes our heroes. I think Paul was probably this way. I think Athanasius was this way. 
Luther definitely was, as well as Calvin and Knox and Jonathan Edwards. People who don't live for the world's smiles and approval, but for the truth can accomplish much if they have the right character under the right circumstances. Well, thanks to Athanasius and his careful thinking and his writing, as well as some of the writings of Arius, which are still in existence, and some of the writings of his followers, which are even worse and made Arius's, in later decades, made Arius's problems more easy to see. Uh, thanks to that, we know what these issues were about. And, and, and if there was a time when the sun was not, then Christ is a creature like us. He may be like God in some neat and interesting ways, but he's not God. Only the Father is God, if Arius is right. The Son, said Arius, doesn't even see or know the Father completely. Therefore, even if the pre-incarnate Christ is more than an angel, he's still less than God. He's limited. He's lower. And, more importantly, he's capable of change, including changing his mind including changing from bad or from good to bad, including you know, falling into sin, just as Lucifer sinned and just as Adam sinned, Christ could still yet today fall into sin. But according to the Arians, God foresaw that he would remain good and therefore God gave him glory as a reward. Therefore, the titles that the Scripture gives to, to Jesus, like God, the Son of God, they aren't really about his nature. They are titles of honor that God has, be, be, uh, has bestowed upon the living Christ. They aren't statements about who he is, really. They're statements about how well he has done what he's done. Not only, said Arius, was Jesus not true God, he was also not true man. And so he was something in between. He was a, a demigod, according to Arius. Not fully God, not fully man. So all of a sudden, instead of having one God, we've got two. And boom, polytheism is back on the table. And the Roman pagans were like, yeah, we knew you'd be back. We have lots of gods. Welcome to our, welcome to our time. And, and so he's not fully God. He's not fully man. He becomes God only in the same way, and here's the key, that each of us can become like God. And that's how Arius interpreted 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, which says, but we know when he appears, we shall be like him. And he interpreted that to mean that each one of us could potentially ascend to become like Christ in our nature. Because Christ was really not that high above you and I. It would be possible, said Arius, if we developed enough moral virtues to become like, just like Christ. So he was not all that unique either. His uniqueness lay in the fact that he was just the first one to do it. But now that he's showed us the way, we could do the same thing. And we could be just like Christ. I don't mean, understand what I mean here. I don't mean like Jesus in our, like he, he, we could be good and, and, and as he is good. It's like we could be like him in our nature. And so you begin to see, uh, if you're familiar with, for instance, any of the doctrines of the Mormons, 
This is exactly what they teach. They teach that, that God used to be a human being on another planet, and if we're good Mormons and we behave in all the right way and undergo all the right ceremonies, that we can someday be gods. And they have a little saying in the Mormon church, as man is, God once was, as God is, man can become. Well, where do you think Joseph Smith got that? Well, he got it from the devil, but he got it from Arius as well. Same idea. And so salvation then is not about receiving grace, which covers our sins. It's not about receiving and resting in the merits of Christ for our justification. It's about one whom God sent to be our example so that we can be inspired by him to higher and higher acts of goodness and perhaps become just like Jesus. For you see, if Christ was created before us, then the only real difference between us and Christ is just that he came first. And so then you have to ask, how can, a, 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 how can Christ save what is created? Because he himself is a creature. And, and if what we needed in order to be saved was a sinless substitute who could perfectly represent God to us and at the same time represent us to God, how could Christ save us? And Arius' answer was by inspiring us with his example. And Athanasius said, oh, no, 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 no. He has to be perfect God and perfect man in perfect union in order to represent God to us and us to God. He had to take on our nature. And he had to heal our nature. And Athanasius said, that which is not assumed by Christ is not healed by Christ. So you do, do you see the distinction, loved ones? This is the, the old, natural, false, man-centered religion that Satan promulgated to Eve in the garden. You shall be like God. You, you be good. You become good enough, and you'll be something quite amazing, and you will merit every good thing that God can give you because he is so impressed with your moral effort and your moral progress. That's the natural religion. That's the religion of most folks. The biblical religion says all of your righteous deeds are filthy rags. The biblical religion says you can never be good enough to dig yourself out of the hole that your bad deeds have dug for you, so you don't need to be inspired. You need to be rescued. Jesus didn't come to tell you to be good. He came to be your substitute because you can't be good enough. He came to suffer and to die, to bear the hell that you deserve, and he came to make it possible for the Holy Spirit to begin to transform you into his likeness. Now, it is at this juncture that I need to address an error in the other direction that the church suffers from. Some people, upon hearing and understanding that they are not good and that God does not save them on account of their goodness, come to Jesus to be saved. They recognize, okay, I'm not good, and I need to be saved by Jesus. And I, and I know that if, I, if I've been warned, and I believe that if I try to be good in order to say to God, would you give me salvation in exchange for my goodness, I, I, I know that that's the... the the one-way path to hell right there because God will take my, look at my good deeds and say, those are 
nasty, filthy rags, and you want me to accept those in exchange for salvation? No, 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 get out of here and go to hell. They get that, they understand that, but they make a fundamental mistake. Since God does not save us for our goodness, they say, indeed, the surest way to hell is to try to come to God with your goodness, then these people conclude, I must never make any effort to become good, ever. Because if I do, then that means I'm trying to earn my salvation all over again. And what these people don't realize, because they haven't been carefully instructed, is that there's more than one part to salvation. Salvation, in one sense, is a moment in time. And something happens to you that's irreversible, that changes the whole direction of your eternal arc. But salvation, in another sense, is a process. And this part is part of the process. There's one part where the sinner realizes his or her need for forgiveness of sins and their absolute inability to do anything to meet their need. So they come to Christ in repentance and faith. They cry out to Jesus to have mercy on them and to save their souls. And he does. For as Romans 10.13 says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's the start of the journey. And that's the only way that the journey can start. And to try and start it in any other way is to end up someplace else than where you want to be. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9 says. But Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's the second part of, the, of, the, of salvation. God doesn't save you because you're a good person who has done good things. God saves you so that you can become a truly good person who does good things. And both parts are absolutely necessary. God never gives one without the other. And, and that's why I'm not a big fan of the so-called sinner's prayer, because the way that it is most often presented and understood by most people is that you can separate those two parts, and you can have forgiveness of sins in heaven when you die without all the fuss and bother of walking daily with the Lord Jesus Christ after that, in a deliberate and intentional process of life transformation. It's just, it's, those two things are completely separated in most people's minds. And by most people, I mean like 90%, according to Billy Graham. But engaging in that Holy Spirit-led and deliberate and intentional process of life transformation is the only sure evidence that the sinner's prayer actually worked, actually saved the sinner. That you've, been, that you've truly believed savingly on the Lord Jesus and have been justified by his blood. Or as James says in James chapter 1, faith without works is dead. And a dead faith can't save you. All of these issues, the good life, the good person, how one becomes a truly good person, 
the nature and the future of the body and the soul. The future of the universe and how the soul might be saved and along with it one day the body saved too and redeemed. How the heart and the mind might be transformed so that you not only escape the penalty for the evil and the hurtful things that you do, but also so that you can stop doing them. So that you cease to harm others. Have you, have you ever come to the place where you recognize how your repetitive behaviors have been hurting somebody close to you maybe for years? And you didn't see it for a long time. Maybe, maybe they even complained about it. And you just said, ah, you're just making stuff up. And then one day you do something and you see that hurt look in your wife's eyes or in your husband's eyes or in your child's eyes. And you go, oh, wow. I've been doing that for a long time. I've done a lot of damage. I should stop. Have you ever tried to stop? Have you really? I mean, if you really try and stop, one of the things you discover is it's really hard to stop, isn't it? That that, that, that sin has a has a, a motion to it, that it's been automated inside of you somehow. So that so that the minute you see something that you don't like and you open your mouth, that same thing comes out again. Or you do that same thing again. And you hurt that person again. And you go, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And they say, yeah, 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 I know. And, and then six weeks later, you do it again. And again. And again. It, it would, it's good to be forgiven for the eternal penalty of that. But wouldn't you like to just be able to let go of that? And, and to deal with the stuff that's behind that, the the anxiety, the anger, the unforgiveness, whatever it is that's behind that, wouldn't it be good just to not have that anymore? That's what Jesus wants to do in you. That's what salvation is really all about. It's about changing you now to the kind of character that you're going to have forever. That's what he wants to do. All of these things the ability to stop doing the things that you're doing that are destructive. All of these things hinge on a proper understanding of who Jesus is. Because you won't know how to get the help you need until you understand who he is and what he's done and the, the, the help that he makes available to you and how to access it. You won't understand any of that until you understand who he is. And that proper understanding has been handed down to us by faithful men and women in the Nicene Creed, which reads in part, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, Begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. Who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, he died, and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. That's who he is. That's what he promises will happen. Oh, come.